Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. This is not really a springboard verse. It's just a verse that's a part of my series, okay, here. So good to see everybody this morning. Good to see April today in the Lord's house. Amen with Sister Adams this morning. So good to see her. Good to see Sister Angie Cruz. I know that she's been kind of walking and towing a fine line between everything that has happened or went on and trying to hold on to maybe a day or two of her own personal time off and such all these things that happen bless her heart that causes her to miss work and the dynamics of all that Uh, not all things are equal across uh, employers okay is is the easiest way for me to put that and so let's 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 be mindful of that amen john chapter number 14 verse number 16 good to see brother mason here this morning i mean just wave at him while you got a chance Hallelujah. John 14, verse 16. The Bible says, this is Jesus speaking now, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. So he's relaying to us right now that this comforter is a spirit. Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him but ye know him. Hold on. So you you already know what is coming. Hmm. For he dwelleth with you. Say. And shall be in you. And Jesus says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Amen. We left off last week talking about how many of modern day society um, teach and subscribe to the concept of the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit as a separate person. The Godhead, we're continuing to consider today uh, the fact of the matter, how that is not necessarily the case according to the word of the Lord. Or let me say not necessarily, that is not the case according to the word of the Lord. All right. So we're going to consider this today and move forward as much as we can. All right. And let me tell you, say if there's things that Brother McGee, there's some things sometimes you talk about I just don't get. That's okay. That's the reason why we have uh, these services recorded and we have podcasts. And uh, I try to give scriptural reference that you can go back with your own personal Bible, put that thing on your lap at your table and go back through and, and, and search the scriptures, be Bereans, as uh, Acts 17 speaks, that they, they, they tried all those things that were spoken to see if they were uh, absolutely true. They just didn't take it at face value. That's good for each and every one of us. Amen. Be a Berean and, and look into uh, the scriptures, even yourself. Father, I come to you this morning. I pray, Father, that you're able to help us today. God, I need you, Lord, your anointing. I need, oh, Lord Jesus, your guidance. God, help, Lord, both the speaker and the hearer today. 
God, I pray, Lord, that you could pull back, Lord Jesus, a cover on our understanding. Help us, Lord, to view, Lord Jesus, the scriptures that have been written, Lord, through the lens of your word, rather than some lens, God, that has been, Lord, fabricated and put in front of our faces. I pray, oh God, today. God, I pray, Jesus, minister your people and help us, Lord, to pull in close, Lord, this doctrine of the oneness of who you are. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray, amen and amen. You may be seated this morning. In Jesus, in Jesus name. And so uh, in John chapter number 14, Jesus, in essence, is revealing himself that he himself would be that comforter that he was speaking about uh, unto the disciples and the multitudes of the people. He says, I'll give you another comforter. He explains to us that uh, that comforter that he is speaking of is evidently going to be in the form of a spirit. All right, because he talks about it being the spirit of truth. So he's not speaking about in the form of a flesh or in the form of a man, but he says, I'm going to send that spirit of truth. And he speaks to them that they, they already know this. He's sending it, yet they know it. Uh, he's speaking to these disciples because he has, has dwelled with them and he should and would be in them. And Jesus makes it quite plain then that, as he would not leave them comfortless, that he was going to be the one coming to them. Now, again, we know Christ Jesus is to be God, which is spirit manifested in the flesh. And so if he's speaking about this comforter that is going to come to them, but he's saying it is a spirit, then we're not talking about Jesus coming back in human form to them, but he's coming back in spirit form. All right. And they already know him because that spirit already indwells the man Christ Jesus. And he's already with them, but he shall be in them. That spirit is going to uh, invade, if you want to call it that, or he's going to come and house inside of the people. And we understand that to take place on the day of Pentecost. When that sound came from heaven as a rushing mighty wind and it filled all of them where they were sitting and they began to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them the utterance and so whenever they were filled with the holy ghost amen they were filled with the spirit of god or they were filled you could even say with the spirit of christ amen because there is no difference in those but if we were to subscribe to the understanding that the holy ghost or the holy spirit is a third person of some triune godhead then consider these verses of scripture if you will with me this morning i got just just a few acts chapter number two verse 38 that many are familiar with then peter said to them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of, of the lord jesus christ in the name of jesus christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts 2 and 4 says it like this, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts 13 and verse 52 says, and the disciples were filled with, the, with joy and with the Holy Ghost. So we're talking about the Holy Ghost filling someone or someone receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, in other places in Scripture, and I said last week, we in the Scripture, Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ, all these things seem to be uh, interchangeable in the Word of the Lord. And so when we come to 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16, he says, Paul says to the church at Corinth, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the, notice the, the phrase here, the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. All right? So, on Pentecost, they receive 
the Holy Ghost in them. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. And now we have the verbiage in Corinthians. He says, the Spirit of God, which most notably in the Scripture, anytime, and even people of just society read God, they think of the Father primarily. Amen. That the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Romans 8 and 9 says, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell of you again most minds think just when it states God of of that relationship others would say person of that relationship father we go on now we look at Colossians 1 and verse number 27 note the verbiage here to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you the hope of glory He says in Romans 8 and verse number 10, and if Christ, we're talking about Jesus Christ here, we'd be talking about what society say would be uh, the second person of the Godhead. I'm telling you the relationship of sonship, a man of God. He said that it's Christ in you, all right, be in you. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, just, just here for a moment. So we got the Holy Ghost, right, who a good portion of society, the third person of the Godhead, Christ, the Holy Ghost in you. You were filled with the Holy Ghost. We have in Corinthians and Romans, speaking of the Spirit of God in you, which most, again, whenever they speak of just God in just plain terms, their mind goes to the Father. That would be a person, according to modern-day society, in you. And then you have the Spirit of Christ Jesus Christ, that would be a person, amen, the spirit of that would be. And so if this would be the case, then we're, we're, we're looking at these things. If the Father and the Son and the Spirit are three different persons, then we are filled with three different spirits. But the Scripture tells us emphatically, like in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, how there is one body and one spirit. It tells us about there is no division. There's just one and the same spirit. For instance, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, for by one spirit are we all baptized in one body, whether we be Jew or Gentile, whether we be bound or free, we have all been made to drink into one spirit. Amen. And so again, when you take the full counsel of God, when, I'm, when I say that, I'm meaning the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. When you take the full counsel of God and, and read each of these in light of the other verses that are within the Scripture, we understand that there is one spirit. It's that spirit that was in the very beginning as creator. That, that, that housed himself in a body as Jesus Christ as a man that walked among them for 33 and a half years. That came to them on the day of Pentecost and filled them with, it's the very same spirit. From creation of old until the present. It's the one and the very same spirit. Amen. Someone say Amen. And so throughout the scripture, we also, and we, we've, and I know there are certain verses that we have trampled on more than once, uh, but please, uh, if you will, just afford me the opportunity to trample on them just a little bit more, not in a negative way, but let's walk by them again. Uh, for instance, like uh, Deuteronomy 6 and 4, uh, to the Jews, which would be their Shema. And in that, the Lord here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, one Lord, uh, the word one in Hebrew, echad, all right? Uh, there have been those of, echad can have 
different meanings, like several Hebrew words or Greek words can have meanings according to the context in which they are used, all right? Just like the word trunk in our English language can have a different meaning in the context that it is used, right? You're going to put all your clothes in the trunk, huh? The elephant had a long trunk, you understand? okay? And so the meaning is dictated by the context in many ways. Well, uh, within modern society and looking through a lens of uh, centuries ago, they want to just take the word ahad in Hebrew and just make it to mean unity or harmony. That's it, nothing more, especially for Deuteronomy 6 and 4. Again, interpreting Deuteronomy 6 and 4 through a concept and an idea of a man-made creed of a trinity. All right? But uh, whenever we look at ahad in the scripture, this word that is understood as one, uh, it is used, I think, somewhere over 900 times throughout uh, the scripture, the Old Testament scripture. And many times I'll say uh, from what, from my stating 600 or a little above out of the 900 times that God is used. Amen. It means one. That singularity of one, that undividedness of one. Just a few instances that that is used in Scripture, and these won't be up there, but just for your own writing down of Genesis 2, verses 21 through 22, the Bible speaks how the Lord took a rib, all right? He took a rib from Adam, one rib from Adam in order to create Eve. In that instance, Ahad is one. When we look at Genesis 22 and verse number 2, the Bible says that Abraham was to offer Isaac up on uh, Mount Moriah or one of the mountains of Moriah because Moriah is kind of like a range and there was a particular mountain. That oneness of that particular mountain is Had. All right. In Leviticus 16 and verse number five, uh, Israel were instructed to offer one ram as a sacrifice. In that instance, again, Had, amen, is the meaning of one. And so uh, in, in our, our scripture of Deuteronomy 6 and 4, with a lens of the Bible, with the lens of scripture, all right, that we have, uh, all, the, all the ones where he says he knows not another God, right, and he was beside himself, all these other things, using that as a lens, then we understand today whenever Ahad was used in scripture, Deuteronomy 6 and 4, it is speaking to that singularity and that oneness, amen, of God. But if you subscribe to uh, another concept that was developed over time, amen, later into the ADs there, then it's going to change. It's going to change some people's understanding as a result of that. Going on this morning, Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, uh, the, the creative day, whenever God created the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and we come to that sixth day and the Bible says and God said let us is what our English Bible says make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon upon the earth so God created man in his own image in the image of God created he him male and female created he them all right and so this is a common concept modern day of Genesis 1 26 in particular well the Bible says and God said let us make man in our image and after our likeness that is undoubtedly God, the, 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 the Father is talking to God, the Son, and, and the Holy Spirit was hovering there over the waters, right? Because the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord moved upon the face of the deep, all right? But folks, 
even just looking just at the English language, I mean, just the English language of 26 and 27. The writer of Genesis, and it's all inspired by God, sums up and gives explanation in verse 27 of verse 26. We read in verse 26, let us make man in our image. And we get down to verse 27. God created man in his own image and created he, him, male and female. Again, taking a solitary verse is dangerous. Taking a solitary verse to build a doctrine is absolutely that dangerous. You take all of scripture and the scriptures that pertain to the topic to build a doctrine. All right. So whenever I read other verses of scripture, like Isaiah 44 and verse 24, where the writer says, and the Lord speaking, I am the Lord that maketh all things that stretcheth forth the heavens alone. That spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. What kind of alone and myself and myself is a committee? All right. Furthermore, furthermore, if we look a little bit further, and, and you know, again, and we have talked about this, um, uh, the plural of majesty or what they call honorifics, just like a queen would say, uh, speaking of the kingdom, uh, we, we are going to overtake uh, that region of the world. And she's just the queen, but she's speaking for the totality of the kingdom. Uh, yeah, that, that's quite possible. But again, I'll tell you, and, and this is my... Uh, since since I've learned just a little bit of Hebrew, and, and Brother Mason has told this this before, even understanding that the verb in there is singular is dictating to us that God, which is Elohim, though it's in the plural form, it's telling us that the subject is singular. I don't think there's anything more concrete than that there. There's nothing more concrete. Although we come and God, Elohim, which is plural, said let us, and we even have these plural, as it would seem, uh, pronouns coming forth. That word make, Asa, is singular. And so the subject is singular. I, I got some slides. We got slides out. Uh, our ears this morning, okay? Uh, rather than just reading some things to you, I thought it would be good to have it before your eyes. If I could touch more than one sense today, uh, maybe it would help you. And I have references at the bottom where these came from if you're interested. But for instance, our first slide, Brother Zach of many, amen, this morning. Uh, the, and, and I quote, the plural pronoun us is most likely a majestic plural from the standpoint of Hebrew grammar and syntax. So we have someone to come to bear on that. Another slide this morning, uh, Christians, and when it says Christians, it's referring to Trinitarian Christians, have traditionally seen Genesis 1.26 as a, a dumbrating or foreshadowing the Trinity. It is now universally admitted that this was not what the plural meant in the original to the original author. Because whenever, listen, whenever you study the Bible, if you go to seminary, one of the first things they tell you in studying the Bible is this, what did that mean to the original author and the audience of that day? See, so you got to go back and, and study what did that mean to them at that moment in time. Because of someone, uh, for some of the phrases that we even have today that may be little cliches, if you were to say that generations from now, they're going to have the slightest idea maybe what that was speaking about because of the time frame difference. They would have to go back to this element of time and say, what was it that precipitated that phrase? What, what, what did that mean to them? All right. And so likewise, amen, here in the word of the Lord. And so scripture is clear that we have, we have one creator. 
We have one creator, one designer. As a matter of fact, with everything that's in the world, uh, it's hard to look at the world and not consider some type of intelligent design. Even, even if someone tries to do something in a chaotic way or a, a way that is not ordered today, it would be impossible to be as ordered as our world is. The orbits just so, the tilts of each planet just so, the rotation and revolution of each planet just so. Uh, my son right now is going through all this science stuff and uh, some of the things, I love it because I'm learning things I learned before I just forgot. And just to think that we're sitting here right now moving over 1,000 miles per hour. With the rotation of the earth. But it don't feel like it because everything's running at a thousand, over a thousand miles per hour. Now, folks, and that the tilt of the axis of the earth is just so that it was, if it were three degrees anymore in either direction, we'd either be burned up by the sun or we'd be in an eternal ice age. Now, to think some single cell mean but climbed up out of the water, evolved and got feathers and got hair later and it all fell off and it was a human. There's some type of creator and intelligent design somewhere. In the beginning, God. Amen. In the beginning, God. Again, back to this God or this Elohim concept and idea. Again, in Scripture, context matters. Uh, it, it could mean God's not meaning the God, but it could mean God's in different contexts of Scripture. But I just want to share a few with you uh, when it's speaking about one, how Elohim, which is a plural word in the Hebrew, is speaking about one. Genesis 32 and 30, whenever Jace, Jacob wrestled uh, with God face to face, Jacob was only wrestling with one. Whenever the Bible speaks that they made the golden calf and they referred to it, this is what uh, uh, Aaron said unto them, these be your gods, as he pointed at a singular calf. That were gods was Elohim. It's in the plural, but it was only one calf. If I might elaborate on that a little bit more, in order to build the calf, he said, give to me your silver and your gold, give me your gold, the golden earrings. You know where they got that? Whenever they left Egypt, they spoiled Egypt. They asked of them for silver, gold, and raiment, and they gave it to the children of Israel. Customarily and historically, Egyptians on their earrings would have small images of their gods. So whenever they created that, that's the reason why Aaron says, these be your gods, because all of them were little dimmy idols that were on their earrings that had been molten down to make one calf. All right. Amen. Judges 6 and verse 31. Baal, which was a false god, was referred to as Elohim. But there was only one deity that was known as Baal. There was just one. Amen. Uh, look at this next slide, if you will. Uh, Brother Zach, you have that for us. Elohim is a uniplural form, which is often used in Hebrew to denote a plentitude of might and majesty. Here it is indicated that God unifies all the forces of eternity and infinity. The Hebrew word Elohim is uniplural, but is interpreted as singular, thus precluding the idea that it's subject to be understood in a plural sense. This term is used exclusively of the divine 
activity. Next slide, if you will. So again, Elohim, many times, and we've talked about this, refers about the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the many multiple attributes of God. God's my healer. God's my deliverer. God's my protector. God's my savior. All right? Amen. Here in the dictionary of the Bible, it says, the fanciful idea that Elohim referred to the trinity of persons in the Godhead hardly finds now no supporter among scholars. It is either what grammarians call the plural of majesty or it denotes the fullness of the divine strength and some powers displayed by God. And oh, he says most scholars, even today, will admit to and attest to that. Everybody doing okay? All right. Amen. Going on this morning. And so we've looked at here a little bit uh, over the past, I don't know how many weeks it's been, four maybe. Amen. Weeks, a lot of scriptural context. Amen. To this oneness of God. But this morning I want to shift and that slide that says the historical record is just a, a, a spot that's holding for you, brother. I saw you knew it and changed. I want to talk about some of the historical record. Guys, I got a lot of slides right here. Is everybody okay? You okay? Because I want you to know that this is just not Paul McGee up here with just a voice and he's saying stuff and he's just misconstruing scripture. I want to give you a lot of different references from a lot of different places. Is everybody all right? The historical record. Let's go. Amen. The Christian doctrine. You can see what page it's on. The Bible does not teach the doctrine of the Trinity, neither the word Trinity itself. For no such language as one in three, three in one, one in essence or substance or three persons is biblical language. The language of the Trinity doctrine is the language of the ancient church. Taken not from the Bible, but from classical Greek philosophy. We'll talk about that today if we can get there. Historical record going on, if you will. New Catholic Dictionary of the Bible. In the Old Testament, the Christian dogma of the Trinity is not known, as most fathers of the church admit. Going on, New Catholic Encyclopedia. The Trinity is not directly and immediately the Word of God. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity is not taught in the Old Testament. I'll go on to say it's not taught in the New Testament. The New Encyclopedia Britannica. Neither the word Trinity nor the explicit doctrine appears in the New Testament. Thank you, Encyclopedia Britannica. That's what I just said. Amen. (laughs) Going on. Amen. An essay on development of Christian doctrine. Let us allow that the whole circle of doctrines of which our Lord is the subject was consistently and uniformly confessed by the primitive church. But it surely is otherwise with the Catholic doctrine of the Trinity. Going on. The Catholic Encyclopedia. In Scripture, there is as yet no single term by which the three divine persons are denoted together. The word trios, of which the Latin trinitas is translation, is first found in Theopolis of Antioch about A.D. 180. Shortly afterwards, it appears in its Latin form of the Trinitas in Tertullian. We'll talk about these people here in just a little bit. All right, this is history class, folks. I'm telling you right now. Amen. Uh, The Triune God by Edmund Fortman. The Old Testament tells us nothing explicitly or by necessary implication of a triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no evidence that any sacred writer 
even suspected the existence of a trinity within the Godhead. Even to see in the Old Testament suggestions of foreshadowings or veiled signs of the trinity of persons is to go beyond the words and intent of the sacred writers. The New Testament writers give us no formal or formulated doctrine of the trinity, no explicit teaching that in one God, there are three co-equal divine persons. Nowhere do we find any Trinitarian doctrine of three distinct subjects of divine life and activity in the same Godhead. Is everybody reading along with me? I hope you're okay. Amen. I know this is a little different. Amen. The triune God. Again, Paul has no formal Trinitarian doctrine and no clear-cut realization of a Trinitarian problem. And he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. There is no Trinitarian doctrine in the Gospels or Acts. Nowhere do we find any Trinitarian doctrine of three distinct subjects of divine life and activity in the same Godhead. Someone say amen. 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 I'd say so be it to that. Amen. A short history of the, hist of the Christian doctrine. As far as the New Testament is concerned, one does not find in it an actual doctrine of the Trinity. Going on, Brother Zach, are you, are you coasting with me? Uh, I don't have eyes in the back of my head, but I'm just trusting you are. Amen. For Christ's sake, uh, a, a writing written, what is most embarrassing for the church, and they specify in brackets, is the difficulty of proving any of these statements of dogma concerning the Trinity in particular from the New Testament documents. You simply cannot find the doctrine of the Trinity set out anywhere in the Bible. This research has led me to believe that the great majority of regular churchgoers are, for all practical purposes, tritheists, tritheists which means they believe in three gods. Because of what they say concerning the Trinity, he said, I can't but believe then that they're believing in three gods. That is, they profess to believe in one God, but in reality, they worship three. Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics. At first, the Christian faith was not Trinitarian. Hold on. At first, the Christian faith was not Trinitarian. It was not so in the apostolic and sub-apostolic ages as reflected in the New Testament and of the early Christian writings. Going on, amen. The Catholic University of American Press, the New Testament itself is far from any doctrine of the Trinity or of a triune God who is three co-equal persons of one nature. Someone say amen. I gotta keep track here of where I'm at. I'm getting hot up here. Amen. Encyclopedia International uh, here today. The doctrine of the Trinity did not form a part of the apostles' preaching as this would have been reported in the New Testament. The Trinity in its final form is a product of many factors. We'll look at that here maybe later today if I can get there. <laughs> Going on. We must honestly admit that the doctrine of the Trinity did not form part of the early Christian New Testament message. Certainly, it cannot be denied that not only the word Trinity, but even the explicit idea of the Trinity is absent from the apostolic witness of the faith. The doctrine of the Trinity itself, however, is not a biblical doctrine. Is everyone doing all right? We need to go halftime, so we need to use the restroom and get a drink. Amen. Origin of evolution of religion. To Jesus and Paul, the doctrine of the Trinity was apparently never known. They say nothing about it. So if we have record, a biblical record, and not leaving that to itself, but historical record, concerning the doctrine of the Trinity not being the original, right? 
Because I'm all about being the original church. Huh? Aren't you, aren't you, you know, about being the original? Have you ever taken a, 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 a piece of paper, took it to a copy machine, made a copy, and made, made a copy of the copy, and then made a copy of the copy, and then made a copy? If you continue doing that, you know what you'll end up with eventually? A blank page. I want to be an exact copy of the original. Because if you just copy what every successive generation or century has, it isn't long that you don't have anything. You don't have a doctrine. You don't have a dogma. You don't have a belief. You don't. You have no reality. Amen. So I want to be a part of the original. And Jesus, even the apostles, they, they warned us, amen, in the scripture that there would come in their day and even in ours deceiving spirits. There would be deceiving spirits. There would be some that would try to pervert and subvert the doctrine of truth that is taught and purported by the word of the Lord. The Bible says in Matthew 7 and verse 15, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. The apostle Paul even tells us about attempts, even in his day, as early as his day, to desort and pervert the the doctrine of the Godhead, of God in Christ. You know, we oftentimes quote how the fullness of the Godhead, right, is in Jesus Christ. But look at the context in which that is set. Of 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 22, he starts with, for the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Always some new philosophy, want to hear something new, want to entertain the mind. But we preach Christ crucified, Paul says, unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Amen. Now let's go back now to Colossians. I, I didn't get the verse I wanted. I skipped it, brother Zach. You should have slapped me. Colossians 2 and verse number 8. Look at it now. Beware. I say beware. Lest any man spoil you. That's basically leading you astray. Through philosophy. And vain deceit after the tradition. Everybody say tradition. Of men. After the rudiments or thinking of the world. And not after Christ. For in him who Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That little verse that we love to quote is set in that context of them saying, don't be taken astray. Don't be caught up in the traditions of men. Don't, don't subscribe to the thinking of the world. For in him, Christ Jesus, dwell upon the fullness of the Godhead. God manifested himself in that man. Amen. That's the word. That's the word. So again, and I already read the scripture there in 1 Corinthians. In the day of even biblical writing, uh, they were dealing with uh, the Jews. Of course, they wanted a sign because they needed something that was <clears throat> justifying, qualifying whoever it was that was to be Christ, right? Although he came with his miracles and all these things that Isaiah said was proof that that was their God. They're always looking for a sign. But the Greeks, you know, we have this in Athens. We have this on Mars Hill with Paul. You know, they're always there to hear some new doctrine. They're there to entertain their minds with some, you know, deep thinking philosophy of enlightenment and so on and so forth. And so that was happening in their day. They, they, they were on a journey of, of never-ending search for truth. Because if someone had something just a little different, a little, it's just like they just took that and incorporated that into whatever they had. 
And they have this big melting pot bin of all these different concepts and ideas. If, they, if you ask the Greek what they believe, whew, sit down and wait for a while because son, they're just going to add whatever comes down the road. Amen to their all, already context of belief. Now, if you can show their, our timeline here, slide, and that's small, I'm sorry. For some people that have problems seeing things close up, you can probably do okay. Not Sister Sheila, you was the one I was depending on. <laughs> well, and I have basic timeline of the Trinity development because you can get more detailed than this and in between. But some of the major players, and folks, here's, God help us today. I start my timeline all the way back to Nimrod. Nimrod is a character that's in your Bible. Nimrod is a character that's in your Bible in Genesis chapter number 10 and 11. About 95 years after the flood, Nimrod is born all the way back to Babylon. There is roots and spirits of this concept of threeness all the way back there. Then we're still in the B.C. time frame of 427, 347, Plato's life. He come up with this document called the, the, uh, the Timaeus, and it had great influence then on other people. Then we have Platonus. He, and we're going to talk a little bit about all these, not, not getting too deep. But all these, they're a development. This is a development over time. Tertullian, he had a hypothesis about the Trinity. And then, well, oh, man, there's just so much stuff here. I'm going to have to really pace myself. There's these monkish Greek people that went to Nicaea before there was ever the Nicaean Council of 325 A.D. They went there. They chose Nicaea. I'm trying to get, but you just want to talk about it when you talk about it. They chose Nicaea because, again, these are philosophers. These are mathematicians. These are people that were religious. And they decided that they needed to find the center of the earth. Zero degree longitude, zero degree latitude. Well, there isn't a city there. So they made an arc out about 50 miles. Anyway, they were trying to find the closest city to the center of the earth. And they did. You know what that city was? Nicaea. Whenever these monks went to Nicaea, they had one objective. They were going to discuss, be very philosophical and mathematical about the number three. This is before the 325 A.D. Council of Nicaea ever came up. We had a, a group of monks there theorizing and talking about all this religious, perhaps significance, about the number three. Interesting, isn't it? So we go on, and then later, 325 A.D., we had the Council of Nicaea. Then between the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople, the Trinity Doctrine came up at the Council of Nicaea. It came up among uh, predominantly the Roman Catholic Church. It came up. But I want you to know there's all kind between that council and the Council of Constantinople, there are about 20 to 30 other councils that's being had trying to hone this and hone that and whittle that and get this to where it's understandable. And finally, Chalcedon, whenever they finally came and include for a while, they were just talking about God the Father, God the Son. They really didn't know what to do with God the Spirit. Kind of hanging out here somewhere. We got to figure out how to include him. And it wasn't really till the, the Council of, Chalced, uh, of Chalcedon that they was able to get the spirit right where it needed to be, <laughs> according to them. Amen. And so that's just a basic timeline. Everybody doing okay? Anybody learned anything? All right. Whew. Let's go to our next slide, Brother Zach. The church 
of the first three centuries. The doctrine of the Trinity was of gradual and comparatively late formation. Because listen, whenever you had the Greeks talking about it, whenever you even had Plato and you had Nimrod, all of those were paganistic religions. It wasn't really until we get into the Council of Nicaea that what was pagan became Christian. The doctrine of the Trinity was of a gradual and comparatively late formation. It had its origin in a source entirely formed from that of the Jewish and Christian scriptures. It grew up and was engrafted on Christianity through the hands of the Platonizing fathers. Going on to the next slide, brothers, at Christians' debt to the heretics. The doctrine of the Trinity was not a first century argument, but a fourth century argument. It was fourth century argument in the terms of it being considered Christian. It goes back a whole lot further. Amen. Under the pagan heading. Trinitarianism did not proceed from Orthodox Christianity, but from unbelievers. Athanasius, who is a person at the Nicene Council who greatly supported and was a big mind behind the Trinitarian doctrine. Supposedly, he is a deacon of the Catholic Church. Supposed to be a good Christian person. But he was excommunicated many times because of all the shenanigans that he pulled in his life. Matter of fact, it isn't until later in that timeline he comes back and says, hey, we need to get this, you know, doctrine together. And he had been excommunicated so many times for immorality or immoral things. And yet he's the mastermind behind much of what even today's modern trinity is. That which is of the spirit is the spirit. And that which is of the flesh is the. In the beginning, everything bore and replicated of its kind. I'm sorry, folks. Everything replicated of its kind. A monkey makes a monkey. A buffalo makes a buffalo. A snake makes a snake. A fruit tree that's a pear is going to make a fruit tree that's a pear. They make of their kind. If this is part of his creation, then it's of his nature. Oh, boy, I'm, I should have wore some. You get the hip waders back there and we need a Lord help us. Amen. And so when we look at, go to my next slide, and we might spend a little time here. I'm at 37 minutes in, so again, we won't get there. Back in our time, we start all the way. For my purpose, we start all the way back at Nimrod. All right. You can go to your Bibles. I don't have those scriptures uh, up there for you, Brother Zach. And, and, and I apologize, but sometimes I just really don't know what I'm going to do. All right. Uh, but the Bible tells us concerning Nimrod, Genesis 10 and 8, and Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. Verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And note in verse 10, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel or Babylon. And they did this in the land of Shinar. If you go to Genesis chapter number 11 and you start reading in Genesis chapter number 11 where the tower of Babel was built that they all were of one language and they wanted to build this tower that reached into the heavens. These are pagan people doing this. 
this is, this is steer-headed by Nimrod. This is, his beginning was in Babel. This is by Nimrod. And so they're building this thing up into heavens. And what, the Lord comes down, he confuses their languages. Huh? It's from there that the nations of the people disperse to all the different regions of the then known world. All right? Is everybody doing all right? And so in this time of Nimrod, Nimrod was considered a god. Nimrod was considered father. He had a mother, Semiramis, all right, that was highly deified too as a god. And then there was a son. There's a whole story behind that. and We don't have time. I can only hit the tops of the trees. Tammuz, he's in your Bible too, all right? And he was the son. All of these were three deities, revered as three deities in Babylon. Watch now. But what happens when the Tower of Babel is brought down by God? He confuses their language, and now they don't stay in Babel, but they're dispersed over the world. You have the concept and the idea of three deities. Now that is in every language over the globe. Amen. And the reason why I say that, let's skip over here, because you start seeing a triad or three gods in a lot of different peoples. The Greeks, they have Zeus, Athena, and Apollo as being their main three gods. In Romans, the Roman Empire, you have Jupiter and Mercury and Venus being their three individual gods. Even the Hindus have Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva as their three individual gods. It proliferated all over the world. But there's something that predates Nimrod, and that's God. There's something that predates the Greeks and the Hindus and, and the Romans that predates all that. That's God. Amen. That one singular God. Amen. And so we see this even after that, the little parentheses there, the Egyptians had their three. Osiris, Isis, and Horus. I was just talking to my son about this this week. My son loves Greek mythology. He loves to read about it. He just is intrigued by it. And so he was reading uh, some things at this point in time about Osiris and Isis, weren't you, and Horus, all of them. So I started having a discussion with him about who they were before they were that, how Nimrod had this, and started talking to him about the oneness of God. Hey, amen. So, so, so the, their start happens back there. And so that you see them then develop in all these different people groups, settings of time and regions of the world because there was a disbursement after Babel. Is everybody doing all right? <laughs> that then concept and idea that people are subscribing to today has roots that go all the way back to Babylon. And again, that wasn't a Christian nation. That was anti-Christian. That was pagan. Polytheist. Amen. Okay. Everybody doing okay? I'm doing all right. Let me go just forward a little bit more. Let's look at Plato here for a minute. Many have probably heard of Plato somewhere in your life. Socrates and Plato and all these things. But Plato was born in in, in Athens, Greece, uh, somewhere between 428 and 427 B.C. He was a student of Socrates for about eight years or so. Uh, he had a lot of influence upon even what we know today as the Trinity. They call much of his influences being unmatched and monumental. One of his famous writings that a lot of this threeness continues to steer from is the Timaeus or, or, or the Timaeus. He wrote and postulated in that that there were three 
entities that existed in the intelligible world. There were three entities that existed in the intelligible world. And in order to demonstrate this, and Sister Sheila, your your eyebrow might go up on this one because you're probably going to start making some connections here. In order to uh, convey this and display this, he came up then with the isosceles triangle that has three equal sides. And at each point, he put the names of these three entities, Nuos, Mino, and Thedo. They were the three deities and the three gods. What do you know even in modern day society that still explains their three many times with a triangle? Well, the Trinitarian doctrine many times is explained with a triangle. With God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, amen, in place. All right, is everyone doing okay? So he had this triangle, you know, they're equal sides. Got the names of these three guys. So here we have even under Plato, a Greek, right? He's got three under different names, but still the same idea is being portrayed. Then we come to, everybody doing okay? I'll shut down here. If I can get down this slide, I'll feel good, better. (laughs) Amen. About 800 years later after him, around 205 AD, it's another philosopher, Plotinus, he was born in Lycopis, Egypt. He came the founder of Neoplatism. You can look it up. You can read about it. Neoplatism. Again, propagating much of the ideas of Plato, propagating much of the ideas that stem all the way back to Babylon. He became the founder of Neoplatism. Neoplatism, again, had the idea there's three entities. It's just, it's just like, like Brother Tenney used to say, it's just the same old hag in a new dress. T.F. Tenney used to say that. Talking about doctrines that came up through time, they were in other generations of just an old hag he called the doctrine. I don't want anybody. He says, just an old hag in a new dress. I'm not talking about any person or personality. I'm just, it's not even my quote. <laughs> Brother Tenney's went on to be with the Lord. But they had this idea of three, three entities as well. Uh, Plotina said that there was a divine mind. That was a God. That was the creator of the, who was the creator of the universe. There was a demiurge that was a smaller God, which came out of the bigger God. And that there was a, a, a spirit as well. And these were the three gods in his Neoplatism. Amen. Again, it's important to remember that none of these things had any inspiration from Scripture. Nothing that Plato said, nothing that Plotinius said, nothing that Nimrod, none of this has any type of inspiration from Scripture. It is all of this up to this time is solely based upon paganistic thinking. But, again, uh, Plotinus, get my plo, my plo or my pla, my Plotinus, he was born in Egypt. So not only does he have the philosophy of Greek coming in from Plato, He's got the impressions of all the Egyptian stuff of Osiris and Isis and Horus coming in as well. He has been born in Egypt and influenced then by the Egyptians as well with their idea of a trinity of gods, of father, mother, and son. All right. Okay. Stand with me, I guess. Go on. Stay with me and I'll hit four more slides. They'll go like popcorn. 
the French, the new universal dictionary, the platonic trinity itself, merely a rearrangement of older trinities, dating back to earlier peoples, appears to be the rational philosophical trinity of attributes that gave birth to the three hypostates or divine persons taught by the Christian churches. This Greek philosopher's concept of the divine trinity can be found in all the ancient pagan religions. The history of Egypt. It is not improbable that the development of the doctrine of the Trinity, which was formed, which formed no part of the original Jewish Christianity. Did you catch that? May be traced to Egyptian influence. As a whole, the older Egyptian theology was permeated with the idea of triple divinity as seen both in the triads of gods, which the various cities worship, and the threefold names representing three different aspects of the same personality under which each god might be addressed. A dictionary of religious knowledge. The Trinity is a corruption borrowed from the heathen religions and engrafted on the Christian faith. That's great. Last one. The story of civilization, Caesar and Christ. From Egypt came the idea of a divine Trinity. Christianity did not destroy paganism. It adopted it. What history and the writers are trying to convey to us is what many today call Christian was first called pagan. But when we talk about the oneness of God, what we call Christian here at the First Apostolic Church was in the beginning called Christian, if I could say it like that. It's inspired by God's word. And not inspired by a false religion. It's inspired by God's word. And its roots go all the way back and predate what many are giving ear and mind to today. Folks, if you can talk about something long enough and persuasive enough, you'll be believed. But that does not negate the reality that it might be false. Or is false. Amen. Give me one more week. Will you give me one more week? One more week. And uh, we, we might. I'm trying to look here. Yeah, we can do it. We'll get through it. I think it's important today. Because a lot of uh, minds, a lot of people, well, that's, you know, 320. No, it, its roots go back further than that. And we just think of it as being something that's Christian. It was something before it was Christian. I think that's important. That's vitally important. Amen. Man, we're going to pray today. I want God to seal some things in our hearts and minds. I know there's been a lot of inform- information go forth, and we've thrown some scripture, of course, in there as well. You've got three other weeks prior to this one that you can go back to. But uh, today, we need the Lord, and we need to be open to this, that the Lord would seal these things in our hearts, that we would not be led astray. That we would not be taken by the rudiments or the thinking of the world or the traditions of men, of men. You want to subscribe to the tradition of God? That's fine. But the traditions of men. Amen. And so we need to protect our hearts and our minds. Amen. Today, because listen, and and, and we'll get into this whole lot later. Whenever we talk about those who were monotheist and those who were tritheist or Trinitarian, even early years, you'll even see in, in writings. Amen. Of those that were subscribing to a trinity, they began calling monotheist heretics. That they were the false people. 
Amen. And so if, you're, if you don't watch it, if you just do a, a cursory reading just of history, you think, well, my goodness, see, they were, they were, that was hearsay. There were a bunch of heretics that monotheism. No, 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 no. Tell me where its roots is. Tell me where its roots is. Is monotheism based in biblical scripture? Yeah. You tell me where the roots of the other then is. Was that something that was formed by man that developed over time that came from a pagan and swept over? And let me just go one step further. If something pagan like that slipped into the church and they're so accepting of it, what else that is pagan could slip over in the church even today? All right. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.